the Lord Jesus is infinitely worthy of our obedience, even in hard things, like forgiving those who have repeatedly sinned against us. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. We're going to talk about something today that I know can be a challenge uh, for us here. I'm going to put a word up here in just a moment. I'd like to know what comes to mind when you see this word right here. It is that word right there. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, so maybe some of you are thinking, oh, no, not another message about forgiveness, right? Do I really have to forgive people who sin against me? And the answer is, yes, you do. And it is not an obligation or an option. It's a command that comes to us straight from our Lord. Now, we can choose not to forgive, of course, uh, but in doing so, we're, we're being disobedient to our Lord. We're being disobedient to his word. But we also, though, set ourselves up for a miserable life of bitterness and resentment. But sure, we can choose not to forgive. So, okay, who's ready to dive into this topic here today? Anybody? A few of us here? Okay. I have to warn you, this is one of those fire hose messages. Occasionally those come out where I know there's a part here that we're going to be throwing a lot at us here today. So I'd ask, don't get overwhelmed by that, but maybe say, Lord, what do you want me to take away from this here today? Is there one thing you want me to grab a hold of here and, and take away from this message, Lord? So we continue then here today on Unique, the Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a harmony of the Gospels where we are looking at the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as a harmony, putting together the messages from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John into one flowing chronological account. Uh, We are following the order of events as suggested here in this book by John MacArthur called One Perfect Life. And for today, then, we are looking here at this topic of forgiveness, faith, and faithfulness. Forgiveness, faith, and faithfulness. And our passage is coming from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. And you might ask, well, what's the big idea? What's the main idea that you want us to take away from the message here today? It is this, that the Lord Jesus is infinitely worthy of, of our obedience, even in hard things, like forgiving those who have repeatedly sinned against us. Sometimes it's hard just to forgive when someone, it's just, it was one thing, one time, but the Lord tells us not only to forgive in that, but even sometimes when someone has repeatedly sinned against us, how can we forgive in that situation? Well, before we look at our text then in Luke 17, Verses 1 through 10, a little context for our text. As you know, Jesus has been ministering in the vicinity of Jerusalem, and the Jewish people were eager for the arrival of their Messiah. They looked forward to his coming in order to set them free from the oppression of Rome and to restore the kingdom of Israel, to bring the nation to great prominence and power and glory. This is what their hope was as they waited for their Messiah. But of course, they did not understand fully the mission of Messiah. 
that Jesus had something far more important that he was going to do. So Jesus, though, was drawing large crowds of people. They were amazed sometimes by the things he said, amazed by his miracles. But sometimes then he would say things that were very surprising to them or maybe very difficult to accept. He would say difficult things like this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, saying take up your cross and follow me, in that culture, this was a serious heavy-duty call to commitment. It meant being willing to die, to lay down one's life in following Christ. A serious heavy-duty call to humility and self-sacrifice. Being told that what? That dying to self is an absolute surrender to God, and we must be willing to surrender our all to him, even willing to die, if need be, to follow Jesus. And then Jesus also said that if we were to follow him, we must count the cost, that following Jesus calls sometimes for some radical choices that go against, certainly go against our fallen, natural human inclinations, but sometimes then, too, these go against cultural values and norms. So following Jesus, then, is a call to embrace self-sacrifice, to embrace the sacrifice of Jesus and the death of Jesus in order that we might know the joy of Jesus and the life of Jesus. So as Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to go to the cross, we, too, must join him on that journey to the cross. Now, taking the path to the cross is not a life of isolation, something that we do all by ourselves. Rather, following Jesus to the cross is a path through this world in which we are constantly interacting with other people. And you may not have noticed this, but these other people that we interact with are sinners. Has anybody figured that out yet? And in fact, you yourself and I, all of us, have a sinful nature within us, don't we? So let's look at what Jesus says then about this call to follow him and sometimes how we then interact with others, with other sinful people like ourselves. It says in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 4 first, Jesus speaking here, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So first here we see a command, a command to forgive. Jesus taught about what are the obligations if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ? What does that mean? What does that look like? What are some of the implications and the obligations of being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? Well, some of those obligations then concern how we interact with other people. 
So here we're going to see in these four verses here, obligations we have as disciples of Jesus and how we interact with others. But then also then in verses 6 through 10, we'll see in a little bit here, about how we act or our obligations toward God. But first here then, followers of Jesus are not to cause people to sin. Now Jesus says what? That in this life, temptations are sure to come. Sins will come. Sin will not be completely eradicated in this life, in this world, will it? Such things are bound to come. But a disciple of Jesus would be better off to be drowned by a millstone, having a millstone tied around his neck, than to bring spiritual harm to one of these little ones then. I think first off in context here, Jesus had already noted that the Pharisees, the Pharisees were what? They were the supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the people, right? How not only were they refusing to enter the kingdom, but they were also then through their actions, through their example, and through their teachings, they were also keeping others from entering the kingdom of heaven. And so the actions of the Pharisees, the so-called spiritual leaders, were causing others, these little ones, to sin. So we must not be like them. And through our example, through our actions, cause others, particularly spiritually young and vulnerable people, to sin. We have that obligation to avoid that. Now, sin is going to come in our lives, isn't it? We're going to sometimes fall to that temptation. But woe to those, though, who would just so carelessly go through life, not thinking about how their example, their actions, might be causing others then to sin. He says, Jesus, it'd be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and cast into you. What was a millstone? Well, it was a huge rock that was used to grind grain. A big rock, about several hundred pounds. I have to tell you, uh, just I've been working on a little project, a little home renovation project here for a while. And uh, this summer I've been focused on some outdoor work. And part of that outdoor work has been uh, some old concrete, some old concrete steps that were in the front porch and on the back. And there was some in the, in the backyard that used to be the footprint of a shed there. And so I had to get that all ripped up. Uh, anybody ever used a jackhammer? So yeah, I got a chance to use a jackhammer. Let me tell you, that is not a job for the faint of heart. I got to tell you there with that. So anyway, getting all this ripped up, the problem is, is that's hard work just getting that concrete all broken up. But then what do you have to do? Got to move it. You got to haul it away there. And so, well, I definitely got a good workout moving all of that old concrete out for, away from the yard, out of the, out of the yard then. And um, <clears throat> there may have been a little bit of it that ended up in the church dumpster. But don't tell anybody about that, right? That is just our little secret right here. Nobody else is supposed to know that. So anyway, um, uh, there might be something... <laughs> There might be something out there now, but I, you didn't hear that from me, right? So anyway, um, the point is it's really heavy. And Jesus says, okay, if we're going to cause someone by our actions, our example, to fall into, especially these little ones, who are these little ones? 
these spiritually young and vulnerable people, right? To cause them to sin, be better to have this heavy rock around your neck and thrown into this. That's pretty serious, don't you think? God takes that seriously. We should look at our example then. But he then says, not only are Jesus' followers not to cause others to sin, but in fact, we then are to counteract sin by doing what? Forgiving. Forgiving others. Now we're told here, what? One should rebuke a brother if he sins. That is, if someone has done some, a, a sin, a, a, a harmful thing, then they should be rebuked or corrected, admonished in that. And if he repents, he is to be forgiven, even if he does it over and over. He says, what, seven times. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus isn't saying, keep count, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, that's it. But it means what? It's a figure of speech. Seven was a figure of completion and wholeness. In other words, there's no limit to how often we are to forgive someone, even if they keep sinning against us over and over again. Now, someone here is thinking this right now, I have no doubt. You're thinking, what? Are you crazy, right? No limit? I'm not sure I can do that. Well, if you're thinking you, you can't keep on forgiving someone, well, I want you to know you're not alone in thinking that or feeling that. In fact, neither were Jesus' disciples. Listen to what they were thinking when he said that. We're told, and the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So here is faith to forgive. We have a command to forgive, and now faith to forgive. You know, I know that we can read that, those verses there about if you had faith like a mustard seed, say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted, planted in the sea, it would obey you. Now, we could take that and just say, oh, well, Jesus is commending us to have great faith, right? Well, no, what is he saying here? In the, what, is, what do we need faith in this context here? It's faith to be able to do the seemingly impossible, which is what? To keep on forgiving someone again and again. Does that take faith and strength and empowerment from above to do that? Oh, absolutely. But Jesus says, no, just even if you have just a little bit of faith, God can do this. God can do this impossible within you of forgiving like that. You can forgive like that. It's interesting, the disciples' impulse was to say what? We need more faith. Increase our faith. Increase our faith. We don't have enough faith. We're not capable of forgiving like that. We need more faith, Lord. But when they asked for more faith, Jesus didn't say, okay, I'll give you more faith. He said what? It's not that you need more faith, but you need what? The right kind of faith. They didn't need more. They just needed the right kind of faith and that even the smallest amount of the right kind of faith, remember a mustard seed, that was considered what? The smallest of the seeds that they knew in their day? 
Even a, even a, a little bit of the right kind of faith can do amazing and miraculous things. Such as what? Uprooting a mulberry tree. Now, a mulberry tree had very deep and extensive roots. Have you ever tried to just like pull up something like a weed or something? You think this is going to be simple. And then you find out, oh, not as simple as you thought because it turns out it looked like that would be a quick thing, easy thing to just uproot that. But then you find out it's got all kinds of deep roots and they're going all over the place. And it's tough to do, right? Well, mobile tree was like that. They said, Jesus says, well, you know, if you just had even the tiniest amount of the right kind of faith, you could do the seemingly impossible. So, okay, well, well what is, not that you need more faith, you just need the right faith. What is the right kind of faith? The right kind of faith is faith in Almighty God for whom nothing is impossible. We don't need faith in faith. We need faith in Almighty God for whom nothing is impossible. And so even a tiny amount of real faith in the true and living Almighty God can do the seemingly impossible By the way, is it you or I that do the seemingly impossible? No, it's God who does the seemingly impossible in us with even just the tiniest amount of faith, real faith in him and what he can do. So we see a command to forgive. We see faith to forgive, the right kind of faith in Almighty God. And by the way, lest we think that we should be really impressed with ourselves, because I forgive this person even though they've sinned against me many times. Listen to what Jesus says next. He says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly And serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So we see a a command to forgive, faith in Almighty God to forgive, but then a duty. It's a duty to forgive. This is not an obligation, or or, or this is an obligation. This is not an option. This is a duty to do. See, this kind of forgiveness is the duty of every servant of the Lord. And we should not expect special praise for doing things that we're expected to do. How many of you are really uncomfortable with this message right here, right now, right? Well, again, don't argue with me about it. This is what he said, right? So if we're being obedient to this, don't expect like oh, you're like some sort of heroic figure. You're simply doing 
What you've been commanded to do is just as a servant follows the commands of the master, so are we to do that. So a servant doesn't get special praise for doing his job. And likewise, as disciples, servants of Christ, we're to fulfill these things in humility as God's unworthy servants. Do you think that you deserve all that God has done for you in Christ? No, we don't. I certainly don't. In summary then, these verses depict the life of mature faith in Jesus. It's a life of forgiveness, a life of faith, and a life of faithfulness. We're told here that forgiveness is unlimited. I know some of you, you're already, you're, you're firing back with these questions in your mind, and don't worry, we're going to get to that in a minute, okay? That's where the fire hose is going to turn on. So nothing should ever prevent a disciple from forgiving. And the true disciple realizes how difficult this is for humans. So the request is made for more faith, but Jesus says, no, you don't need more faith. You just need the right faith, the right kind of faith in the God who can do the impossible. So the smallest amount of true faith in the God who can do the impossible can do the impossible. So forgiving is not the impossible, it's the normal act of faith. So Jesus' followers then, trusting him in faith and seeking to do the Father's will, will forgive people without keeping score. How many of you say, oh yeah, oh, I've, learned, oh, I've forgiven again and again, but, but actually we're kind of, we're, we're, keeping, we're keeping score, right? Is that really forgiving when we're keeping score? Keeping track? Well, how can you and I, how can we have such faith and offer such forgiveness? Well, we must live in humility, knowing our place, that we are but unworthy servants. God is our master. We are unworthy servants. And so we should not look upon a life of ongoing forgiveness as a great accomplishment, but whether we simply see it as the normal act of the life of faith. Forgiveness is what Jesus expects of us, and as his servants, we are to do what he expects of us. So if we refuse to forgive or we think we cannot forgive, then we have the wrong opinion of ourselves. We think that we are something greater and better than an unworthy servant. So do not ask for increased faith but rather ask for the true faith that makes you a servant of Jesus who normally practices forgiveness as a faithful way of life. Well, here's where we're going to turn on the fire hose here. Biblical forgiveness. I know that this raises a lot of questions. So who has some questions there as I was saying? That? Who wants to argue? Who wants to debate this, right? Me. I want to debate it, right? So does he. I don't blame you. Or she, I'm not entirely sure back there. So, so I suspect that uh, we have some questions about this. First off, let's talk about, well, what is forgiveness? What is biblical forgiveness? Well, biblical forgiveness is a 
At the heart of it, it means to release, to dismiss, to let go. Release what? Well, we are releasing, we're dismissing then the right to punish someone for their wrongdoing. It is a releasing, a dismissal, a letting go of the right to punish someone for their wrongdoing. It is discharging a moral debt. Here's some other things about biblical forgiveness that it is a choice. It isn't something we always feel, is it? It is a choice. Is love always a feeling? Now, there's some feelings that get involved in love, but is love primarily a feeling? No, it's a, primarily it's a choice. Well, forgiveness is not primarily a feeling. There may be feelings involved in it, but it is primarily what? A choice. Forgiveness is a choice that may or may not involve our feelings, at least right away. So forgiveness is releasing that right to punish someone. It is a choice that may or may not involve our feelings. It is a command. It's not optional. We've been told to do this. It's also important for us to understand the ground. Why can we do this? Why is it just to forgive someone even though they don't deserve it? By the way, who here wants to live in a world, do you want God to be absolutely just with you? Think about that for a minute before you answer. Do you want God to be perfectly just with you? No, you don't. I don't. We want what? Mercy and grace, right? So is forgiveness perfectly just? Yes and no, right? It's grace, and God is just to forgive. Why? Because there is a a grounding, a basis for it, which is what? The shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is just to forgive. Why? Because Jesus paid the penalty. So the ground of all forgiveness is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God is not unjust when he forgives. It's also important to note this too, because some of you I know you're arguing with, with this text here in this. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean a lack of consequences for sin. Yes, that uh, a sin can be forgiven, but there still may be consequences of that action. We're not saying that there are no consequences then for that sin necessarily. Also, it's important to note this. Forgiveness may not mean the full restoration of relationship. Although ideally that is the goal, if at all possible, but sometimes I know that may not be possible to restore that relationship, particularly in the case of someone who's not admitted it, who's not repented of it. So here's some tough questions about this. Let's briefly consider a few of them. First of all, is forgiveness conditional or unconditional? Is it conditional or unconditional? And I think the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> it's both, I think. What do you mean? Well, 
So we say, is forgiveness, should that be conditioned upon the other person's repentance? Unless that person repents, you can't forgive them. Or should it be unconditional, as unilateral, one way on your part, not conditioned upon the other person's repentance or lack thereof? I think it's a complex question. But I'd answer that by saying this, that unless an offense requires confrontation, unconditional, unilateral forgiveness should kind of be the default position of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're quick to forgive. In other words, I think most offenses should be covered by unconditional forgiveness in which we should not demand repentance before extending forgiveness to that person. However, that said, there are instances in Scripture when confrontation and repentance are required before there can be forgiveness and reconciliation. There are some things, there are serious things that need to be addressed and dealt with, right? But let's be honest here, folks. How often do we tend to take the things that maybe aren't really that serious and grave and elevate them to a level that they don't deserve, right? So, yes, there may be a need sometimes for a full acknowledgement and repentance, especially if we're talking about a restoration or a reconciliation of relationship. I know that. I get that. And I know that some relationships, frankly, just will never be fully reconciled or restored. I get that as well. But I think it needs to be the heart of the, the default position of the heart, if you will, of the believer, is to graciously and generously forgive. So what does unconditional forgiveness mean then? Well, I think it's a deliberate decision to cover the other person's offense. A choice, not a feeling, a decision to set aside that transgression and to not permit the offense to cause a festering into bitterness in our lives. Because who, who else are we hurting? We think we're, we're paying that person back, but I'm not going to forgive them, and we're going to hold that pain and that grudge. And who ultimately are we really hurting more probably than that person? Ourselves, right? So the person who chooses to forgive then resolves not to remember the offense, refuses to hold the grudge, relinquishes any claim, and resists the temptation to brood or retaliate. Do we have any brooders here? And that you don't have to raise your hand, right? Brooders, retaliators. Forgiveness is what? Saying, you know what, I give up the right to retaliate. I'm not going to brood about this. I'm going to release this person from this. And I can do it. Why? Because God has released me of so much of my sin. That's why. That's why we do it. So, you know, for, for minor, unintentional offenses, which, let's face it, I think a lot of them are, this is the proper and the loving way to live and to forgive. It's done without condition, without confrontation, without stirring up strife, we just forgive. But as I said, are there times when we do need to confront? Absolutely, there are. But are there some 
biblical principles we might follow then to help us when we, there is a need to confront. I think John MacArthur offers a couple of guidelines in dealing with this question I think is good. What, when, what about when there is a need? This is a serious thing that requires confrontation. Well, first off, I say this. Number one, whenever possible, especially if the offense is petty or unintentional, it's best to forgive unilaterally, right? If it's petty, unintentional, which honestly I think many of them are, (laughs) then it's best to forgive unilaterally. It says the second thing, that if you were the only injured party, even if the offense was public and flagrant, you may still choose to forgive unilaterally. You can still choose to do that. However, though, sometimes that simply may not be an option. And in those cases, Scripture calls for confrontation. And here are some guidelines, again, he offers that I think are helpful. Number one, if you observe a serious offense that is a sin against someone other than you, confront the offender. Second, when ignoring an offense might hurt the offender, confront the offender. Number three, when a sin is scandalous or otherwise potentially damaging to the body of Christ, confrontation is essential. And for any time an offense results in a broken relationship, formal forgiveness is an important step toward reconciliation. So is forgiveness conditional or unconditional? I think the answer is yes. It's both, depending on the gravity. How about this question? Okay, so let's say I I do forgive. Well, what do I do with my hurt and the anger that I feel? What do I do with that? Well, first of all, you know, it's quite normal to feel anger, isn't it? But we need to distinguish between destructive anger and constructive anger. Destructive anger, what drives people apart, it severs relationships, it contaminates our souls. Constructive anger seeks to break through the walls that separate us and it yearns to remove barriers, presses to open communication. It mobilizes our energy to work against injustices and it searches eagerly for opportunities to reach out to others. Some Christians seem to think that anger in itself is wrong, but that's not true. After all, God himself gets angry, doesn't he? So the real issue then is why we're angry and then what we do about those feelings. So in dealing with our anger, prayerfully consider the reason for the anger. Why are you angry? Maybe it's a righteous anger. You should be angry about that. If so, ask the Lord to show you then how to funnel that into positive purposes. Lord, how can you take this anger that I'm feeling, which is right to feel this way, help me to funnel that, though, into positive purposes? Because sometimes even righteous anger can lead us into unrighteous attitudes and actions, can it? If it is an unrighteous anger, then do what? Immediately confess it for what it is. Confess that sin before God and repent. Turn from that, and don't give the devil a foothold in your life. Because will he take advantage of that? Oh, you betcha.
So whether the anger is righteous or not, we must choose how to respond. Because even righteous anger can lead to sin in our lives if we don't respond properly. Well, someone will say, but you don't understand. You don't know how badly that person hurt me. And it's true that not all of us have been hurt to the same degree as others. But many others have been hurt just as badly as you have, or perhaps even worse. But they have found freedom from anger and bitterness by deliberately choosing to forgive, even though our emotions were screaming for vengeance. So we need to be obedient regardless of how we feel. And if we refuse to harbor spite or dwell on the offense, then those evil emotions will be starved. And we'll find that God will set our hearts right. And it takes some time, but eventually, though, those right emotions will eventually come if we surrender to God in this. And ultimately, then, a conscious, deliberate, willful choice to forgive is the only thing that can free us from a heart, free our hearts from the bondage of such negative emotions. Well, what about the repeat offender, the person that just keeps doing this over and over? Well, what did we just read in Luke 17 today? If your brother sins against you seven times in a day and seven times he comes back to you and says, I repent, do what? Forgive him. Now, I can understand the difficulty of that, but remember, do we have any repeat offenders here today? Okay. You think, well, I haven't repeatedly sinned against someone in my life. Uh, Stop. Is there someone against whom you have repeatedly sinned? God, right? See, all of us are repeat offenders. And maybe even there's someone in your life that you've repeatedly sinned against. You needed some grace and some mercy and some patience extended to you. Do the same for someone else. Well, what if I don't believe the offender's repentance is sincere? Let me give you a quick answer. So what? It's not your job to worry about whether that person is sincere or not. But that said, though, does that mean, though, that we have to repeatedly put ourselves in the line of fire? No, we don't. Doesn't mean a lack of consequences necessarily. You may, someone says, you may punch me in the nose and say I'm sorry, and you may do it again, and maybe you do it again, but you know what? I don't have to keep putting my nose in front of your fist, do I? (laughs) So this isn't telling us then to put ourselves out there to be eternal martyrs to somebody's bad behavior. So God does not tell us to throw our discernment out the window when evaluating a person's repentance. So deliberately repeated offenses, especially when accompanied by a phony repentance, frankly, they're evidence of a profoundly evil character and a cynical hatred of the truth. So keep that in mind. Is there a place for restitution? Yes, there is, isn't there, sometimes? Sometimes it may mean, forgiving someone may mean simply what? Giving up the right to be 
to have restitution in some way, just letting it go. But perhaps if we have sinned against someone else, then maybe there is an appropriate restitution that can and should be made. We see examples of that in Scripture, don't we? Or how about this one? Is forgiving the same thing as forgetting? We hear the expression, forgive and forget, all the time. But when we grant forgiveness, does that mean that we promise to forget the offense completely? Yes and no. It is not possible to purge completely the memory of an offense. I know that's especially true for some of us more than others. I'll be honest with you. I used to think that I was really, really good at forgiving until I realized one day it's just, no, I just have a terrible memory and I don't... (laughs) I don't remember these things that I'm supposed... Okay, now why am I supposed to be upset with you again? What did you say? What did you do five years ago? I don't don't know. I don't remember what you did last week, let alone five years ago, okay? So don't be like me and think you're really good at forgiving if maybe what it is is you just don't remember stuff. But actually, I kind of think maybe that's a gift, isn't it? Not to remember stuff. But some of us here, and I'm not going to name names, but some of us here are really good at remembering everything that was said 10 years ago, right? And the ones who are laughing, you know who you are, don't you? So it's not going to completely leave our minds, some of us, right? But people will sometimes say, "Well, well, God forgets our sins when he forgives. Does God really forget our sins in the sense that he has no recollection whatsoever of our sin? No, that's absurd. God does not forget in the sense of it's out of his knowledge well, right? So what does it mean when God forgets our sin? It's not that he has no knowledge of it. It means what? That he purposes not to remember them. Well, what's the difference? Well, if you and I forget something, it's gone from our conscious recollection, recollection. But obviously, the omniscient God never truly forgets anything, does he? But rather, when Scripture speaks of him forgetting our sins, it means sins. It means that he refuses to call it to mind, to keep bringing it up again and again. Amen. God. That's what God does when he forgets us. He doesn't keep bringing it up again and again. So when we forget... It means it's a promise not to continually remind the other person of their offense. Biblical counselor Jay Adams had something very good to say about this. He characterizes forgiveness then as a threefold promise. You promise not to remember their sin by bringing it up to them, to others, or to yourself. So when I forget it, what? I'm not going to bring it up to that person. I'm not going to bring it up to others. We like to do that sometimes too, don't we? And I'm not even going to bring it up to me. It's buried. I want to conclude here by something. Uh, I'm going to give you a, a fancy term here that theologians have, and then we will talk about what that means practically for you and me. I want to conclude by suggesting that perhaps one of the reasons why we may find it difficult to forgive is because we are afraid that somehow justice will not be served. People are gonna, they're gonna get away with it. I think God has given us all an inborn desire and need for justice to be done. 
Perhaps we're afraid that if we forgive the person who doesn't deserve forgiveness, then somehow justice will not be served. But I got news for you, that simply isn't true. Because you see, the truth is no one, you and I included, is going to get away with anything, do we? Because this is that fancy theological, there is such a thing as eschatological justice, which means that in the end, God is fully just and righteous and every sin is going to be accounted for one way or another. So is what we don't need to do, we don't need to help God out in judging sin. He's got that covered. So you're not helping God out. I'm not helping God out by refusing to forgive someone because we don't want justice not to be served here. God's going to handle the justice, the ultimate justice of things. So you and I don't need to do that. We don't need to try to do his job for him on that. And so this knowledge of the certainty of this accountability and judgment before God ought to motivate us then to pursue forgiveness all the more and so grow in our Christian maturity because we don't need to do God's work of judging for him. He'll do that. So if you're sitting here this morning struggling with any of these questions, I want to encourage you to take that struggle to God's throne room right now. If you're angry, prayerfully evaluate the anger. Ask God to show you how to channel that energy into positive and constructive ends while also asking forgiveness for harboring bitterness. Choose to forgive regardless of how you may feel. And I know forgiveness doesn't always come easily to us. But let's remember that parable Jesus told in Matthew about the servant who had been forgiven an unimaginably vast debt. And then he goes out and he finds someone who owes him a tiny pittance by comparison to what he has been forgiven. And he demands, pay back what you owe. Let's not be that servant who's been forgiven so much but then can't extend such a little bit of forgiveness compared to how much God has forgiven you and me. God knows our pain. He knows our circumstances. But he asks us, though, to trust him with matters of ultimate justice and vengeance. You and I don't need to do it for him. And I think as we do that, when we obey Christ in this matter, our feelings of bitterness and anger eventually will give way to gentleness and humility. Frustration is overcome by peace. Anxiety gives way to calm. Forgiveness then lifts us from that heavy burden that we've been carrying. And it liberates us then in order to more fully know and experience the great mercies and joy of our Heavenly Father. So what? Well, the Lord Jesus is infinitely worthy of our obedience, even in hard things, like forgiving those who've repeatedly sinned against us. So I ask you, do you need to extend forgiveness to someone? Is there someone who has sinned against you and you've been harboring that in your heart? There's a bitterness there that you need to let go. Maybe that person has confessed and repented of it 
and ask your forgiveness, but you're still holding on to it. Or maybe they haven't at all. Maybe they don't even acknowledge it. Don't hold on to it. Let God be the judge of that. You release it. Do you need to ask forgiveness of someone? Maybe you have sinned against someone. It's the Spirit prompting your heart. Say, you know what? I think I, I, I need to go to that person and to seek their forgiveness. So I'd ask you then, do you want to choose to live in the freedom and the joy of forgiveness? See, God tells us to forgive. And one of the reasons he tells us to do this is what? So that we might walk in freedom and joy because there's freedom and joy in forgiveness, not the bondage of bitterness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I know it's hard for us to forgive sometimes. But I pray, though, Father, that you, who have extended infinite mercy and grace to us in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would flood our hearts and our minds with that grace. We don't ask for more faith. But, Lord, we pray that you would take that faith in you, the almighty, sovereign Lord of the universe, to do the impossible in us. Help us to forgive, to release, to let go, Lord, that we may walk in freedom and joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.